My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Nicole Marie Burton. The last decade has seen a blossoming of political comics, graphic novels, and graphic histories grounded in struggles for justice and liberation. Though these forms of artistic and political intervention have much longer histories, today's guest sees a number of reasons for their recent upsurge in popularity. In part, she relates it to an increasing openness by teachers and librarians to comics, particularly for young people for whom the graphical component might help deal with barriers related to reading and language, but more generally as well. She also links it to the rise of both maker culture, which valorizes a wide range of independent creation, and crowdfunding models, which make it easier to publish outside of a politically confining mainstream. In addition, she argues that scholars and scientists, including those with radical politics, are recognizing the increasing importance of reaching people beyond the bounds of the academy with their work, and comics are one of a number of media that they're using to do that. Nicole Marie Burton is a comics illustrator and the founder of the Ottawa-based independent publisher Ad Astra Comics. She's been actively making art since she was a child, and in high school, seemed set to go the route of art school, followed by some kind of professional career. As she learned more from older friends about the challenges of making a living in such a career, outside of corporate design work, she made a radical change in direction. Instead, she spent four years in Vancouver as a student and a full-time organizer for a communist group, and after leaving that organization, spent the rest of her 20s working various service sector jobs. In 2013, Burton started Ad Astra as a pop-up shop to sell political comics at punk shows and book fairs. Over time, it grew. It became a collective. And the collective members decided they wanted to try making the transition from grassroots distribution to independent publishing. In particular, they noticed that it was very common to run across comics that were politically solid but artistically mediocre, or that were visually beautiful but were not so great in terms of their politics. They saw a niche and they thought they could fill it. One important decision that they made early on was to fund their work in a non-traditional way. They used crowdfunding, which in this context amounts to having enough people pre-order each book so that they have the resources to actually produce it. Their first four projects as they got established were reprints of one kind or another, and then they moved on to original pieces. These days, most of Burton's energy goes into her own work as an illustrator, in which she works with scholars, nonprofit organizations, and political groups to produce comics that help to disseminate their ideas. Her most recent project is a collaboration with University of Toronto historian Cassandra Luchuk called Enemy Alien, A True Story of Life Behind Barbed Wire, published by Between the Lines. In the course of her research, Luchuk had discovered an unpublished memoir by a man named John Boychuk. It turned out to be a genuine treasure, the most comprehensive testimony ever found by someone who was a detainee in Canada's first national internment operation, which took place during the First World War. Enemy Alien tells Boychuk's story. 
During the war, people deemed to be an enemy alien were subject to detention, which ended up largely meaning Ukrainians, but also people from a wide range of ethnicities with Austro-Hungarian passports. Boychuk was detained by the police in Toronto, then sent to Kapuskasing by train, where in the winter of 1914-15 he and hundreds of other men had to build their own barracks. Over the next several years he faced a life of imprisonment, abusive guards, and forced labor. It's a tale of bleakness, boredom, hunger, and fear, but also moments of joy. And it shows resistance, riots and hunger strikes, slowdowns and a union drive. In telling this story, Burton and Luchuk open a personal window into one of the lesser-known episodes in the long trajectory of state-driven harm that has been so central to Canadian nation-building. I speak with Burton about radical comics, about Ad Astra, and about Enemy Alien. My name is Nicole. I live in Ottawa, Canada. I'm a comics illustrator and also the founder of a little publisher called Ad Astra Comics. We specialize in comics with social justice themes. Been around for about six years now. My most recent work that's out in the world is called Enemy Alien, and it is a graphic biography, a graphic history, a graphic novel that is based on the memoirs of a young Ukrainian man who was interned in a Canadian internment camp during World War One. The story documents everything from his being detained and picked up by Toronto police in the 19-teens to his being sent to Kappas Casing by train in northern Ontario, where he is dumped with hundreds of other men who then are forced to build their own barracks in the middle of the wilderness during the winter of 1914-1915. The story goes on until the end of the war when internees are actually sold off and shipped off to companies like Dominion Steel and other major sites of Canadian industry to essentially work as forced laborers in different parts of the country. So he gets sent to Cape Breton and Nova Scotia and works at a foundry for two or three years. And it's only through organizing a union that they're able to establish certain pay and rights and terms for their employment. And I'm not going to give away too much else. <laughs> it does go on a little bit, but I, I worry about spoilers. I've been interested in art since I was a little kid. I drew a lot for fun when I was younger. I still have a story my dad likes to remind me of. He was a forestry professor at UBC, and one day he couldn't get childcare for me, so he had to take me to one of his lectures. And apparently I sat in the back of the room and like drew the tree diagrams that he had up on the screen. I like to kind of think about that because I have always been interested in drawing nonfiction things, which is interesting that I've now found my way into comics because a lot of people think of comics as like cartoons and caricatures, but I deal almost exclusively with nonfiction illustration work. When I was a high school student, I took art very seriously. I was a part of a really prestigious program in my high school and had a pretty solid trajectory to end up in an art school. But as I thought about it, and also I, I had friends who were, you know, a year or two older than me who were going off to places in the United States where I went to high school. They would come back from places like Cooper Union and the San Francisco School of Art, Milwaukee School of Art and Design, like really prestigious schools and programs, just totally disillusioned. And when we talked about it, it often boiled down to things like, well, you can't survive as an artist. 
you will end up needing to survive by doing design work. And the only people who pay for design work are corporations. So this, of course, got me terrified that I was going to end up designing, you know, Starbucks coffee cups for the rest of my life. And so I decided I wasn't going to go to art school. And I actually spent the next four years of my undergrad in Vancouver, primarily focusing on being a really full-time, serious political organizer. I worked with a communist organization for four years, learned a lot of things, realized I was doing a lot of things wrong, and ended up taking a break and just sort of working in my 20s. And it was in that time that I kind of had some breathing room where I came back around to art and comics. I think it was me trying to figure out, okay, I'm working as a waitress right now and the money is okay, but it's really sapping my soul. So is there another job that I can build towards? Making enough money off of comics and art didn't quite seem possible in my mind just yet. So I kind of started nibbling at the edges of a political comics career. I started at Astra Comics first as a pop-up shop in Toronto that would sell political comic books at like punk shows and book fairs. And it was fun, but it never really paid the bills. I met a lot of really interesting people and I definitely got to read a lot of comics that came in through my stock. But then as the business became a collective. I started working with other activists who were interested in producing political comics. I met my husband. We shifted into publishing, which has a little bit of a higher markup. And also you get to control the content that's coming out. One of the things that we noticed early on as retailers was political comics often fall into two camps. They're either really incredible politics made by somebody who has no idea how to make a comic or they're really beautiful works of art by somebody who is not very politically experienced. And so we kept noticing, it's like, oh, there seems to be kind of a bit of a gap here. And maybe one of these days, maybe we can fill that gap and make, you know, really cool professionally made comics that have really good politics. That's about where things were at in the mid 2010s. Fast forward to the present, I spend almost all of my time now on paid commission projects, making comics with mostly scholars, but some nonprofit organizations and political groups to make comics that help them disseminate their research and their ideas. Sometimes the ideas that we need to communicate in the world are actually quite complex. And having somebody in the room who knows how to communicate in innovative media like comics can really be a game changer for a scientist or an academic. So that's where I'm at. And that's where I was when Cass contacted me. So Cass Lechuk is the author of Enemy Alien. She works at the Department of History at University of Toronto and specializes in Ukrainian immigration to Canada and has like a special interest in radical movements within the Canadian Ukrainian community on the left and on the right. Before we dive into talking about Enemy Alien, give listeners a sense of Ad Astra's work. Getting a publisher off the ground and getting a content catalog built without any real startup capital other than being able to pay ourselves to continue to make rent as we moved into this full-time job, we were looking for content that either had already been done and had been released in a different market or had been done and had sort of fallen into obscurity or fallen out of print in the North American market. And so our first four 
self-publishing projects were all books that had come out in one way, shape, or form in different capacities. So our first book, Drawing the Line, which was an anthology by women in India about gender discrimination, that actually came to us from a feminist publisher in New Delhi who asked us if we wanted to do a North American release of the book. Now, what we ended up doing with that project and with all of our projects since then is that we crowdfund all of our books. So essentially, people pre-order the book and within three or four months, we get the book mailed out to them. We did that for the next couple of books we put out. So our second book was called Extraction, which was an out-of-print anthology from Montreal about Canadian mining companies. Canadian mining is maybe one of the most important areas of activism in this country, and it gets precious little attention, even on the left. Our third project, a little bit of an anomaly in the sense that the author already had a pretty big following on his own, we connected with the New York protest artist Seth Tabachman. He was looking for a publisher for his out-of-print book, War in the Neighborhood, which is just this incredible graphic memoir of his time in the squatters movement in New York City in the late 80s and early 90s. We did one more re-release, which was Ting's Chalks Undocumented, which was a book of mostly architectural sketches about Canada's immigrant detention system. So Ting's was working as an activist with known as Illegal Toronto at a time when they were finishing up their master's in architecture school. And these two influences really come together in this book. The book that we did next was one of our first original productions. It was an anthology of artwork and essays by Peter Collins, who was a prisoner in Ontario up until recently. He recently passed away. He was an organizer within prisons, and he wrote extensively about Canada's prison system. How did Enemy Alien come about? I got an email from Cass in March of 2018. Cass had come across a memoir in a private collection by a man named John Boychuk. And as far as she could tell, it was one of the most comprehensive testimonies that she had ever found of the Canadian internment camp system from World War I, which predominantly housed Ukrainians, but it also encompassed anybody who had an Austro-Hungarian passport and then could therefore be considered an enemy alien by the Canadian state. So also other Eastern Europeans, Slavs, Czechs, Hungarians, even Turks ended up in the camps. John's memoir details a lot of this to a degree that had been, I don't want to say previously unknown, but maybe just not as personal. So Cass contacted me and asked if I was interested and available to work on the project. One thing led to another. The script needed a bit of work. And so, you know, we spent some of the first few months preparing a script for the comic medium. My partner, Hugh Goldring, helped with that. He's a part of the Ad Astra Comics Collective and focuses on research and writing. And we were fortunate enough to have a lot of image references as well. So I relied heavily on those for initially sketching out what this comic was going to look like. Tell me more about the nuts and bolts of the collaboration between you and Cass. I got to be honest, Cass made it incredibly easy. 
she was basically just like, I'm a historian. This is what I do. I do writing. I've never made a comic before. Whatever you feel like you need to do, I will focus on my end of the work, which is being a historian and making sure that things are historically accurate. That made my job a lot easier because at the end of the day, I have my own constraints as an artist, and I also want to do what's best for the narrative itself. So if something needs to be drawn out in one big panel or nine small panels, I like to feel like I can make that suggestion and my collaborator can agree and say, yep, that's the right move. Ultimately, it was really helpful to have a historian helping with the project to say, you know, this thing that you drew here is actually historically inaccurate, so we need to change that. You know, that's just like exactly the type of feedback that I want to be able to get as an artist. I want to make my work as accurate as possible. But, you know, it started out as a script. It would go back and forth over email. And then from there, the script turned into loose penciled pages where we could kind of explore the pacing of the comic together and look at what text was going where. The more form a comic takes, the more you can kind of see clearly if something's working or isn't going to work or you notice fine details that you didn't really notice before. Like, I think it was one of the last things that we discovered about the comic where all of the guns that the soldiers and guards carried in the internment camp had bayonets on them. And Cass was like, no, none of them had bayonets. (laughs) So it's just this tedious process of going in and removing all of the bayonets. But, you know, that's how it was. So we changed it. In working on this project, what did you learn about the history of internment in Canada during the First World War that you found most interesting or most important? I didn't know anything about Canada's internment of Ukrainians during World War I. Now, I didn't go to high school in Canada. I went to high school in the United States. But I've been surprised to find that a lot of people who went to high school in Canada either didn't spend a lot of time on it and so didn't know a lot of the details or just frankly don't remember any of it from their high school history class. So I had everything to learn from this project. I actually felt pretty emotionally impacted by the illustration process, which was a bit of a surprise for me. I mean, I spent over a month drawing some pretty bleak images of people essentially being malnourished and forced to work for, you know, 14 hours a day or being beaten by soldiers. And it really drove home just the, I want to say like the brutal tediousness of it all. I would feel on a visceral level, the high points that they had, you know, there's a scene where it's Christmas time and they start to receive packages from family members of, you know, jam and tobacco or tea or And you just really feel it. You're just like, oh my gosh, I'm so grateful there's like something here that they have to look forward to. Or there's another scene where to keep the mice and rats down, each of the barracks buildings were allowed to keep one cat. And so each of the internees had a pet cat that they shared with the men in their barracks. And that offered them a little bit of comfort in a really cruel place. So that really stands out for me. And the rest is a lot of really, frankly, shocking numbers. You know, thousands of men ended up in these camps and many of them were held there even after the war. So it's a shocking piece of history to be learning at this point in my life. What lessons do you think are in this book that are relevant to today's context? Oh, gosh. Um, I think that we in Canada still have people being detained and held without charges sometimes for indefinite periods of time in ways that either we don't know about or if we are told about it, we're told 
that it's for national security. I still think that horrible things happen at the hands of the Canadian government that are meant to be a part of the building up of the Canadian settler state. And I think that that's also sort of a bill of goods that were sold, you know, the justification to deprive people of their humanity for the sake of national security. I think that that's still very much a problem in the world. What's the response to the book been like so far? It's been limited because it only came out around the time that the coronavirus was listed as a pandemic. So unfortunately, we've had all of our launches canceled, and that was really going to be the first sort of public-facing opportunity for the book. However, we have gotten some pretty good feedback from both progressives and people within the Ukrainian community. I think the plan at the moment is that we're going to try to shift a couple of the launches over to community Zoom calls or maybe some Facebook Live video where Cass and I talk about the process of making the book. Other than that, it's really about just talking with some of my friends in radio and podcasting. I'm really looking forward to people being able to read this book. And, you know, fortunately, books are still a thing that people can enjoy right now. Stepping away from this specific project, how do you understand the renaissance or the upsurge in interest in comics, particularly political comics of various sorts, in the last decade or so? That's a great question. I mean, there are a couple of different ways to attack it. We could say that political comics or serious comics can be traced way further back. I mean, in the early 90s, Art Spiegelman won the first Pulitzer for a comic for his graphic novel, Mouse. And then before that, you had people like Harvey Pekar, who was drawing really meticulous work around just mundane, everyday autobiographical stories. Or you had personal tell-alls like, I think his name is Green, but he wrote a memoir called Binky Brown versus the Holy Virgin Mary about his obsessive compulsive disorder. And I just think about how that was a book that came out of the underground comic scene of the 70s, but it feels perfectly suited for today's market. So, I mean, we could go back and we could see how there were trailblazers who were paving the way for people like me now. But I think that there are a couple of different things coming together, particularly in the last decade, that's made a bit of a perfect storm for a comics renaissance. I think one of them is that we have a new generation of teachers and librarians who are willing and able to see the multitude of values available in introducing comics to kids in their classroom and to young readers, maybe readers who won't necessarily read novels every month or who struggle with reading, maybe people who have English as a second or third language, comics can be really useful. This ties into some of those juicy statistics, like comics are the fastest growing section of American libraries and has been for most of the 20 teens. I like to combine that with the rise of maker culture and creative industry culture that has been able to take root in the last 10 years. So not only are comics gaining in popularity, but like independent indie comics are gaining in popularity in ways that they just were never able to find footing in the past in an orthodox publisher's market. And I think a big part of that has to do with the crowdfunding model that I mentioned earlier. Now, if you're a comic artist and you have a cool idea, you can just jump on a platform. And if you have enough followers, you can crowdsource the cost of 
not only printing your book, but also, you know, taking the time to draw it and make it, which might be a more competitive offer than any major comic book publisher is willing to give you. I think all of these are important factors. You mentioned political comics in particular. I definitely do feel like political scholars, as well as science scholars, and other people doing important scholarly work are more now than ever recognizing the importance of having good comms, <laughs> you know, good communication, good dissemination tools for reaching the general public. Because otherwise, we're just talking to people in the academy. And at the end of the day, maybe that's not that different than publishing in a journal. And comics is one of the low cost, relatively simpler ways of doing that kind of dissemination. It's arguably less costly than making a film, than maybe like building an interactive website. You know, certainly people do that kind of stuff too, but comics becomes one of the media that is available for making a topic more engaging and more popular. So I think that, as I said, I think there's just like a bunch of different ways to look at it. And I think that those all can be true at the same time. And as someone who's devoted a lot of your time and creative energies to this medium, what's your understanding of what it can do, of its potential role as a kind of political intervention? Well, I can say from personal experience, it can turn you into an activist. I feel like my trajectory into activism and political organizing, which is now over 15 years old, really started in many ways with Art Spiegelman's mouse. So I'm not sure if it can be overestimated. I mean, comics can change people's lives. There's a lot of evidence out there that shows that people's political opinions are kind of sticky, and that can make it a really hard thing to change somebody's mind in a public setting. Now, that could be, you know, in a group argument at a dinner party, or that can be on a Facebook comment thread. If somebody feels like you are proposing a different political idea from what they think, in a way that might make them look bad or might make them feel a little embarrassed, there might be a limit to how open they're going to be in public. But reading, and comics in particular, is a very personal thing. It can be really personally engaging and reflective. And I think that that's one of the reasons why we see comics dealing with some pretty serious subject matter. There's just like a lot of room for the reader to reflect on what they're reading and what they're looking at and really feel it deeply. And it's in this context that I think that political comics is just the perfect fit. It is a medium that can be felt deeply personally, can be experienced by a reader privately and at their own pace, and the content can literally change their life or the way that they think about something. Do I think that all political comics do that? No. <laughs> no, probably not. But the potential is there. And, you know, I'd like to think that one day I will make a comic like that. <laughs> you have been listening to my interview with Nicole Marie Burton. To learn more about Enemy Alien, A True Story of Life Behind Barbed Wire, written by Cassandra Luchuk, illustrated by Burton, and published by Between the Lines Press, search for it on btlbooks.com. And to learn more about Ad Astra Comics, go to adastracomics, that's with an X, dot com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.